0: Paralegals are highly essential, from law firms and courtrooms to insurance, real estate, HR, and more. If a paralegal career or law school is in your future, Stevenson University Online's Bachelor's in Legal Studies will help you achieve your goals affordably with no application fee. 100% online. Approved by the American Bar Association with new online sessions starting every eight weeks. Get started today. Visit stevenson.edu paralegal.
1: Welcome
2: to Mouth Off, a podcast for, and about, marginalized groups. Now I use the word marginalized here in its broadest sense. Previous episodes cover a wide range of topics from mental health issues, LGBTQ plus issues, substance abuse, issues affecting the disabled community, the list goes on. In today's episode, I'll be continuing with our special feature entitled On the Margins of the Mainstream. In part one of this special feature, I interviewed singer-songwriter Matt Costa. He shared his experiences as a successful musician who has been teetering on the margins of mainstream success without ever quite fully breaking into the mainstream. In part two of this special feature, we're moving from music into Hollywood. I'll be interviewing actor, director and coach Jeffrey Wiseman. Jeffrey is an American actor who has appeared in numerous motion pictures and TV shows. His most notable roles were Teddy Conway in the film Pale Rider and George McFly in Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3. In television he is guest starred on TV shows such as Scarecrow and Mrs King, Max Headroom, Dallas, The Man Show, Diagnosis Murder and my personal favourite playing Screech's guru on Saved by the Bell. He continues to act on stage, film and television as well as coaching and teaching acting for film, directing, writing and improvisation at San Francisco School of Digital Filmmaking. He also teaches Commedia dell'arte. Latte. Other notable roles include Stan Laurel, Groucho Marx, and Mark Twain. Wiseman is also the founder and director of the Flying Penguins Improvisation Group, and he has helped develop Los Angeles Theatre Sports, now known as Impro Theatre, which is now in its 22nd year. He performed in the Second City Alumni Jams at Ashgrove, and performed for a year with Laugh Factory All-Star Improv Jam, a.k.a. Wrought Irony. In this interview, Jeffrey talks openly about what it was like coming in on the 11th hour to play the iconic role of George McFly in what went on to be one of the most successful movie franchises of all time. Jeffrey took over from the actor Crispin Glover, who played George in the first movie, and we discussed the ongoing drama and subsequent court case that ensued that led Jeffrey to being blacklisted by Hollywood. And he discusses how that impacted him both personally and professionally. So join us now as we go back to the future with Jeffrey Wiseman. So, Jeffrey, thank you so much for. Agreeing to take the time out to come on the podcast today.
1: So, nice to meet you.
2: yeah, no, nice to meet you. I I was listening to um the Back to the Future back uh, Back to the Future the podcast, the one hosted by Brad Gilmore, and heard a really nice uh, interview with you. I think you were on there twice, weren't you? I do a lot of
1: these.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I first became aware of your work way back when I was about, I don't know, eight, nine, maybe ten, at my great-grandparents' house. So they were big fans of westerns. You know, if you kind of stayed over there, you knew it was going to be a Clint Eastwood film that was going to be sort of dominating the the TV, which was great. Clint Eastwood is fantastic, (laughs) as you know. And, yeah, so I remember one weekend, Pale Rider was on. So... Yeah, I knew when I read then that that was the motion pictures that you had done. That rang a bell for me, and that was one of the the westerns that I did enjoy with my grandparents, my great-grandparents. So that's got some nice nostalgia for me. Great film, great performance.
3: Are you quitting, Mr. Barrett? Just going to town, Teddy. Ain't that kind of dumb after
2: what happened last time? I guess for our UK listeners that might be a little less familiar with your sort of full filmography. How would you describe yourself in a nutshell?
4: Uh, in a nutshell, describe myself. Okay, um, uh, a versatile actor. I've, I've mostly played character roles. I started uh, when I was considered a uh, new talent in Hollywood, I was considered for a lot of lead roles. <clears throat> Screen testing for films like War Games. I uh, was about to go in for my test for Lady Hawk uh, when Matthew Broderick came down in his price. Um, I had uh, a pretty fun, uh, hardworking agent that opened a lot of doors for me there in the early to mid 80s. Uh, she helped me get uh, into Warner Brothers to audition for Pale Rider. Uh, I, I diversify in that I, I play a lot of uh, live, uh, in-person, <laughs> I'm multifaceted. I do a lot of stage work and I do a lot of uh, uh, almost one-on-one environmental entertainments.
1: Mm-hmm. I've been in
4: immersive theatrical productions and also living history events and productions. Uh, I help uh, direct, uh, coordinate, administrate, uh, produce, write develop projects Uh, i teach um yeah i i basically try to keep um many doors open because making a living specifically as an actor is extremely difficult because Mm -hmm. the competition is so severe example when i first came back to hollywood after my training as sort of a hot property uh when i'd go up uh on a project it was generally uh uh, casting directors would tell me for every character that they put out that they were looking for talent for they'd probably get 500 submissions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now with the advent of technology and the uh oversaturation of talent in hollywood and else other entertainment capitals a casting director would put a character out into the breakdown services uh and they'll get 2,000 to 2,500 submissions
1: Wow.
4: So the competition is fierce and uh, it's really difficult to get your foot in the door if you don't have a great agent or great materials. And I coach uh, my actors and, and would-be actors on the business of acting and get, help them get their eyes kind of clear as to what they're up against
1: mm.
4: and always recommend that uh, if you're, your heart is into it, if you have to do it, uh, to find something practical to make a living at and then do it. Yeah. or have a, a good foundation of lots of savings to get you through a year or so
2: yeah, I mean my background is is acting as well i I went to theater school um in north london um it, it, yeah, and I guess what it was great I went to a school a a small theater school, and what was great about them is they whereas like most of the big London schools were sort of Trying to make West End, um, you know, musical stars and West End play stars. And uh, so many would drop out of the profession within the first sort of five years. Whereas the small school that I went to was like, look, if you want to work as an, as an actor, you know, we can get you, um, you know, the contacts and we can give you the knowledge to keep working within the field. You might not be in the West End. The chances are you probably won't, but you'll be working at it and you'll still be in that sort of line of work you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, which is kind of, you want the reality of it, don't you, when, you, when you're when you starting out and going into it, so you don't get disheartened, I guess.
4: Yeah, you, you, I think the best training is sinking your teeth into a role, getting into shows, uh, finding out the nuts and bolts, the working uh, aspects, uh, becoming a team player. Mm-hmm. If you get your materials together and you just sort of wait with an agent uh, doing all the work and, and you expect it all to come to you, it'd take a long, long time. Most of the young talents that I nurture uh, or mentor, uh, the ones that really make it are the ones who are constantly working the social networks, working mm-hmm. uh, networking in the industry, creating their own projects, mm-hmm. uh, finding collaborations with other Actors and writers, producers and directors, and putting putting it all together, it's it's like a big puzzle,
1: mm-hmm. and it
4: takes time. Uh, generally, you've probably heard the, the saying: uh, an overnight success takes about twenty years.
1: Yeah.
4: <laughs> uh, you can cut it in half, or I've known actors and actresses who have cut it down to one to three years mm-hmm. because they are assertive. I don't want to encourage uh, aggressiveness because that mm-hmm. generally puts off casting professionals or directors or other professionals in the industry, but assertiveness with uh, without being overbearing mm, yeah. or needy. Also, an actor will shoot themselves in the foot if they go into, say, an audition and they're needy. Mm.
1: Yeah. The,
4: uh, the, the casting professionals pick up on that.
1: Uh-huh. And they go, well,
4: if you're like this on the set, no, no. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And, I, mean, and yeah. I had that
4: problem, too, with my, myself early on. Mm. I just wanted to work and mm-hmm. I was, I hated the audition process. Now I've learned to to love the audition process because it's just now, if you look at it as an exercise and to show that you can do your craft, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to me in the past, I I always wanted to please everyone, give everyone what they wanted. So I wanted to know what they wanted and I looked too needy or, or like, I didn't know what I was yeah. doing.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So you said you sort of, uh, I guess, you know, became like a, like a hot property in Hollywood sort of in the eighties, mid eighties. I mean, you were acting a while before that, you sort of had a, a career on the, the stage before kind of getting your first feature films. Is that right?
4: Yeah. I, I did uh, shows in, in, in school, uh, uh, on stage mostly. I, but the, then I started doing films with friends uh, in junior high mm-hmm. and high school. And, uh well then let me back up i in uh grade 7 i started getting on stage and and uh doing variety shows singing and poetry and little scenes and then got the lead in the big production that year uh and just loved it so much and i i was encouraged kind of to ham it up in the part i was i was playing mm-hmm. even though it was a dragon i was in yeah. a giant
1: Uh, I could
4: could breathe smoke through through my nostrils and and, and I'd make make talk by going (laughs) you know and I won the hearts of the audience but the older kids who saw me hemming it up hated me Uh, unfortunately I I, I sort of repeated that going through uh, junior high and high school I had uh, I was assertive and, uh, got cast playing Charles Condamine and Blythe Spirit in the ninth grade. Uh, in 10th grade was, uh, the clown and, and, uh, Merchant of Venice. And then Dark of the Moon played the lead. And many of these seniors who had worked years to get those leads saw me come in as a freshman or a sophomore as an upstart. And, uh, I did not make friends. Um, it got undermined a few times. I kind of learned my ego training of not being cocky and mm. uh, uh, being more of a team player, and supporting. Uh, kind of learning it the hard way with a lot of d- dangerous pranks that were played on me. But uh, but I learned it opened my eyes. <laughs> uh, and and my folks, my uh, folks had both worked in. Uh, uh, my mother had been in a bail bonds business where she bailed big stars. Uh, and comedians like Lenny Bruce uh, out of, out of jail. Um, yeah. And, and Winston Churchill's daughter for uh, pot charges. And, and, you know, it, and, and she didn't think that acting was a good uh, profession as well. My father ran these clubs, private clubs for bridge and backgammon and mm-hmm. people like Omar Sharif and his partner, Lauren Green from Bodanza, uh He saw them gambling and drinking and swearing all day. And yeah. uh, a lot of them told him not to let me be an actor when he would ask them for advice. My kid wants to be an actor. And and so they didn't really let me become or pursue professional acting as a kid growing up. Though I had friends on TV shows and various movies and such. And uh, I just, you know, had the itch and desire. So as soon as I was out of high school, I signed up to be a background worker in mostly crowd scenes in films yeah. uh in the late 70s like the rose with Bette midler and uh, fm uh-huh. uh i want to hold your hand
1: yeah. and
4: uh, sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band where
0: i got brainwashed by Alice cooper marvin sunk now known as father son was an unemployed school crossing guard at the bottom of his life when he suddenly got the idea to drop the K from his last name Well that move lit up his life and it's been uphill ever since. He decided to go into the media business and help destroy the minds of those young people who teased him on their way to school. Now he was busy brainwashing them for FVB to build an army to take over the world.
4: Ultimately, though, I learned being on set as a background is really unsatisfa- unsatisfying. I, I, I didn't have really any lines or maybe bits of business, but nothing to sink my teeth into to create a character or, or have some nice scene work. You no know, meat. And a, a wonderful uh, uh, artistic director of a theater company in Los Angeles recommended that I get some training to be taken seriously by casting. Yeah, and so I two went to acting school uh, up at the American conservatory theater in San Francisco. And while there, uh, doing my intermediate studies, uh, I fell into an opportunity uh, to screen test um, for war games. Wow. As you can see here with my big hair in 1981, <laughs> I don't know if, if that's uh, showing well on the, on your screen.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Uh, and the director, Uh, the original director, Martin Brest, uh, had recommended me to a a hot new agent who had come out of the New York William Morris office, opened a boutique agency of her own in Beverly Hills, and she pursued me to to negotiate the screen test. Uh, Before you screen test, you have to negotiate your pay if you get the film, and then she Offered to represent me, and I had to move back to Los Angeles after falling in love with San Francisco and the Bay Area. Yeah, it's really yeah. lovely place. And so, reluctantly, I went back to Los Angeles. I uh, didn't get war games, but uh, about three months after moving back, uh, I started uh, working finally in the industry.
2: So, was it always? I mean, what was the the main drive? Did you, you know, you said you, you enjoyed the high school. Plays that you did being on the stage, did you have more of a leaning towards like theater? did you want to be a Broadway star, or was it kind of film hollywood that's the end game, like straight away, or was there no master plan
4: <laughs> i well, growing up wanting to be in professional films, I had been in quite a few uh, films with young filmmaker friends, <laughs> uh, but wanting to be uh, on the big screen, I think when I was real little seeing my babysitter kind of freak out after meeting Omar Sharif at my dad's club. And then she and I went and watched him on the big screen in a film that he had just come out in and watching her kind of freak out both times. I was like, Oh, I really want that adoration. I want to entertain and please, especially this babysitter who I I really secretly adored, even though I was a baby, I, Mm -hmm. I really liked her a lot. So Mm -hmm. I, I think I had it kind of set in my makeup since, since very young Uh, though. I luckily shifted from wanting to be the center of attention to wanting to be part of great storytelling Mm -hmm. and wanting to hopefully entertain and enlighten. I think there's a great deal of power that actors and storytellers have with uh, enlightening and, and educating people to, their foibles or to, uh, increasing awareness. And, you know, so I love activism in films and storytellers, uh, stories that, that tell, uh, great moral, have great morals, uh, mm-hmm. lessons. And, uh, so I, uh, I, I continued my love of, of, stage. I, I even after going back to Hollywood, I started, working a lot with friends who were doing improvisation, who were training at a place called the Groundlings, which was famous for churning out such talents as Paul Rubens and and Cassandra, Cassandra Wilson, Elvira and Pee Wee Herman, um, as well as uh, um, members of the Saturday Night Live cast. I I was, I was doing a a lot of improv uh, and folk that I had gone to, talent I'd gone to uh, university with up in San Francisco, were doing that as well and breaking into shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? I I know over in the UK, my friend Mike McShane and Greg Proops, both were on the uh, UK version of Whose Line. And I helped form Los Angeles Theatre Sports out of those uh, friends that I was doing improv with Uh, And now they're into their 38th year, something like that, uh, as a group known as Impro Theater, where they'll do a two and a half hour improvised Jane Austen piece or uh, Tennessee Williams Mm -hmm. theme show or Twilight Zone. It's really lovely, incredible talents that have honed their craft to be able to improvise. yeah. On those themes, it's it's mind-boggling, and a lot of audience, you know, swear that's that's got to be scripted, and it's not. Yeah, because the the talent is so fine and so refined. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, do you have this room now?
3: I I, uh, I I've I've signed up for it. I'm a few minutes early, so if you want, I'll, I can come back. I'll come back. No, no, that's fine. It's yours no 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 it, it's technically still yours it's mine and i got two you got two minutes left so i can you can just use it for whatever i might be longer than two minutes okay do you mind if i just sit here then oh, whatever you want okay and you see i'm in crisis here yeah yeah, yeah. are you do you have empathy or not i, I want to ask you to my room and i've got it <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I laugh when I get nervous. I wanna, I wanna see. You're get that- <laughs> my misery. You're a face. You're a such a no oh, such and such. Oh, I can <laughs> say some things. Get out of here until my two minutes are done, will you? I'm down to now a minute. I only have a minute left in this room. God, stop laughing. <laughs> I'm nervous. You're a <laughs> It's just because I'm nervous. When I get nervous, I laugh.
4: Uh, so I also continue doing uh, Shakespeare. I played got to play Mercutio when I returned to Hollywood. I uh, started working uh, doing theme park work as different characters yeah.
1: uh,
4: Laurel and Hardy I played Stan Laurel at Universal Studios in Hollywood from 1987 to 2001 so if you went to Universal and saw I also played Charlie Chapman and Groucho Marx and, and you got your f- photo with Laurel and Hardy or the others uh, I might I might be playing that character
1: yeah.
2: Yeah I was actually just going to say you you've played you know played a, a range of iconic characters like you've just mentioned Stan, Stan Laurel there Groucho Marx um also Mark Twain um did, yeah, you- I fell
4: I fell into the, doing that kind of work yeah. in between film and TV work Yeah um, because I it re- really needed to f- figure out how to raise my children and pay for them yeah. at, you know, yeah, the yeah. in in frequency of theater film and television work uh, doesn't allow you to put uh, food on the table a lot. And there I, I fell into an opportunity. The actor who was playing Oliver Hardy, when I auditioned, uh, he recognized me from when I played Mercutio all in right. that Romeo and Juliet. And he said, you know, I had it all wrong, my, my Stanley impression. Uh, but he <laughs> turned to the boss and said, this guy's got ta- t- talent, I'll train him. And uh, his name was Beavis Faversham. He ended up, training me, helping me develop not only Stan Laurel, but my Charlie Chavin and my Groucho.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) witness the unwitnessable, the world's only ventriloquist dummy (laughs) that can sing and reason and talk on his burial. May I present Oscar the Magnificent. (laughs) Well then, Oscar. How are you today?
1: Well, I'd be fine, Ollie, if I wasn't so upset. (laughs) Oh, Uh,
3: what's the matter? Well, yesterday, me uncle, he fell through the floor and broke his neck. Uh,
0: Well, that's too bad. What was he doing, building a house?
1: Oh, no, they were hanging him. You
0: know what they
1: say?
3: Uh,
0: Oh, what do they say?
1: Time flies like an arrow, and fruit flies
3: like a banana.
4: Uh, and it opened my eyes to the genius of those wonderful talents and learned that they also borrowed from the great talents that they grew up watching.
2: Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, you know, were you sort of like wearing your influences on your sleeve? But it was actually you kind of became interested in them more, having had the opportunity to play those roles. Is that is that right?
4: I, I had to study th- their mannerisms and, and line deliveries in films and such, but also their histories and and learned so much. As you know, uh, Stanley was from Lancashire mm,
1: mm.
4: and grew up uh, with a theatrical family. His father was a producer and his father, I, I in the course of playing the role of Stan Laurel, I became friends with his daughter, Lois Laurel, wow. and her wonderful husband, the late, great uh, Tony Haas. And I was invited several times to their home, and got to go to their little Laurel and Hardy museum in the backyard and see all the props and everything from the European tours. And then the uh, Lois one day opened up her library, her, her father's scrapbooks for me, and there wow. was a photo of Stanley probably at the age of ten in the backyard. His father had built a stage for the children, mm-hmm. and he was directing his brothers and sisters on stage.
1: <laughs>
4: it, was, it was so revealing and remarkable. And watching Stanley's evolution in his scrapbooks, there were four pages that were all just tiny, tiny pictures of him with a different hat, mm-hmm. a different mustache or beard or look. And, you know, in, in some, he had elements of the final stand that we mm-hmm. know from the teaming of Laurel and Hardy and other outrageously comical things that he was trying out. And as I started to say, he borrowed like that, that look that
1: yeah, yeah.
4: Uh, if you look at pictures of Dan Lino, who was a music hall performer that Stanley grew up watching and ad- admiring, Dan Lino makes that face oh. in uh, several different shows and photographs that, that you can find. Charlie Chaplin borrowed heavily from Max Lender over in France uh, and the Marx Brothers borrowed heavily from other uh, uh how shall i say is kind of racist genres that they grew up in uh watching in vaudeville as children uh so it 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 was really rich for me if i hadn't fallen into that type of work i don't know that my appreciation of those great talents would be as deep as it is now i mm. i uh you know collect uh not only ephemera highlighting those different talents But I've made friends around the world playing those talents. And uh, luckily, you know, knock on wood, I've represented them at various conventions and events. Charlie Chaplin days at the Niles Museum, uh, SNA Studios, uh, the Sons of the Desert have brought me into their international conventions to play Stanley and multiple characters. And it's, it's been really rewarding because I'm a fan and I get to share my fandom with real fans. And I'm also scared to death because I know I'll be scrutinized. Well, let's hear your favorite line, you know? And (laughs) and since uh, in recent years started playing Larry Fine of the Three Stooges, those Stooges fans are just as obsessive Mm -hmm. as the World Hardy fans. And then of course, Mark Twain more recently. Mm -hmm. um, I played Twain, I fell into it, auditioning for a dramatization of his trip to Europe and the Holy Land in 1867. And the director... Thought I nailed it, my audition, and I got to shoot several days here in the U.S. and then go to Israel and shoot for 10 days, uh, recreating his steps. And I didn't know all that much about Twain, and I was thrown into it. And I got a few things wrong, but luckily, over the years, I've researched and grown more and more into uh, my Twain studies and I'm trying to develop, especially with these pandemic times, mm. a sustainable project, which I call uh, Mark Twain's American History, where he uh, is actually on the wrong side of a controversy, a political movement, and gets on the right side either by being hit over the head by a friend or family member or uh, through uh, his own experiences in life. The general reader will never know what a consummate ass he can become until he goes abroad. <laughs> I speak now, of course, in the supposition that the gentle reader has
3: never been abroad before and therefore is not already a consummate ass.
2: Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, you've mentioned several projects there. You have an obvious flair for, you know, comedy timing. And I know you've got background in Commedia de latte. You know, do you, do you feel like sort of that, that skill, whether it be a skill at sort of imitation and imitating or the sort of comedy timing? I guess what I'm wondering is, do you embrace maybe being typecast or are you typecast, do you think, as the kind of goofy comic relief?
0: In the gentle rolling hills of Northern California.
4: Other than my picker's hands, which I make sure are always clean, the nails are trim. Mine are the only hands that have been part of the entire process.
1: Or do you do? Do you
2: sort of try and remove yourself from labels, or do you play to your strengths? I mean, what's what's your view on it?
4: <laughs> well, I, lo- I love doing it all. Yes. I, as you say, am often cast in the comedic and the goofy. I went up on Revenge on the Nerds a couple times and uh, I finally ended up, after many years of not getting those nerd roles, uh, playing Screech's guru, the high geek on "Say by the Bell. I'm feeling low. Tell me the secret of happiness. Happiness? Well, that's easy.
3: Marry a cheerleader and live at the beach.
4: I often am... Asked to play comedic roles because it's uh, a very, uh, it, it's a, a, a muscle that needs to be uh, exercised and developed. And I've got a pretty good instincts with the comedy, especially playing these slapstick characters mm-hmm. for many years, eight hours a day, seven days, or five days a week. Uh, I got to really try out and see what works in front of a live audience often.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And also then using, uh, Using those talents, uh, doing industrial films as those characters, and on uh, in feature films as those characters, uh, and I, I've also developed uh, original characters and and as you'd mentioned, commedia dell'arte, uh, mm-hmm. playing at Renaissance fairs and elsewhere. Uh, I've played Arlecchino and uh, Puccinella, mm. various Zanis and uh, Pedrolino. Lots of uh, fun doing yeah. that, that heavily physical, heavily improvised type work. You know, the, the Comedias often didn't have scripts, but yeah. rather would do Lazzies inside Scenarios, which were basically outlines. We're going to go from point A to point B and to point C to point D. And those are the notes that we have to get those points in between. I don't care what happens.
1: Yeah. And,
4: and it's a free for all. And that's why you have a slapstick, because if everything goes south, everyone just hits each other yes. with a slapstick. <laughs> and it's so much fun and it's so exciting because you don't know what's going to happen, but you have to trust. And that's why often Commedia dell'Arte, were, uh, troops were families that knew yeah. each other. Uh, yeah. uh, one of the silent film stars that I doubt that I would have uh, known about had I not con- gone into this type of work, uh, I adore, um, is uh, Lupino Lane. Mm -hmm. who came from five generations of actors dating back to Commedia dell'Arte and up through Music Hall. When he was a child, he and Little Titch were buddies, and they would dress up and go around London uh, as as schoolboys, even though Little Titch was a grown man, but he was diminutive. (laughs) And uh, and he was famous because at the time he was the highest paid uh, talent performing in the music halls uh, at the same time as... Le Petit in, in France, you know, in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And he had this, this gag where he would uh, do comedy sketches and singing and go up on his slap shoes, which would double his height. And the audience would go, Wow! You know, uh, really a wonderful performer. So Lupino Lane, who did music hall as a kid, then came to Hollywood and did silent films for educational pictures, who also had Fatty Arbuckle directing uh, often. And he just brought his brother, Stanley Lupino, uh, whose daughter was Ida Lupino, uh, and they would do their knockabout routines in these fight scenes in their films. So it was almost like watching human cartoons, mm. just uh, as good uh, as Keaton and, and Chaplin, really fantastic comedies. Uh, so I, uh, I just love that connection of uh his family tree going all the way back to Commedia dell'arte performing. And uh, I've taught uh, Commedia at university here in the States
1: mm-hmm.
4: and uh, performed in various troupes and, and just love it.
1: Yeah.
4: But as you say, uh, and I digress and side, sidetrack all the time, so please excuse me. <laughs>
1: okay.
4: but I love it though when I get offered a dramatic role. Getting into your mind. Uh, yeah. The man soaked in red is still bothering you. Sometimes in life there's things you can't cover up. <laughs> you wanna stay in this town? You gotta ignore him. You gotta forget <laughs> about him. Don't let him invade your thoughts. He's got no power over you unless you give it to him. <laughs> chaos knocks on the door of perfection it always gets in a couple of years ago I was offered uh, the role of a uh, a, a depressed uh, widower who has a metal plate in his head and terrible epilepsy
1: mm-hmm.
4: and he becomes the avenging angel of an adolescent girl who's being abused in the foster care system and by the local gang and uh, and is terribly violent and uh, very heavy. And I loved playing the role because it stretched me as an actor. It uh, was new territory for me dramatically. And, and and I just adored playing it. I had to have epileptic seizures, the grandma, and I even fell, in, fell into one uh, at a very unexpected place. Luckily, the director trusted me and my instincts for improvisation when uh, the character pushes away this adolescent girl who has crossed some boundaries Mm -hmm. and uh, his friends say, you know, you're going to go to jail for statutory, you know, blah, blah, you know. And so he decides he's not going to uh, look bad uh, anymore and and refuses this girl. As soon as she walks out of the, the room, i fell back and started having a grand mal seizure
1: mm-hmm.
4: and the director kept the camera on me and it, it becomes one of the more potent moments in the film, uh, because it just trusted it. It wasn't in the script. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, improvisation muscle served me both for, for comedy, know, and, comedy yeah, but and for the dramatic as well. Recently, uh, I did a show a live theater production in Berkeley where I played, uh, a hostage, being held by an environmental terrorist in a show called Cat's Paw. Mm -hmm. And in that, which we did in the rounds, the audience was right on top of us. Mm -hmm. I had to really have a pretty much a breakdown, both physical, mental, emotional, right in front of the audience every night. And uh, some of the audience members afterwards, you know, we do Q&A, and they were like in shock. They said, I've never seen in theater this intense before. Mm -hmm. And that's vastly rewarding to have, to be able to work on all pistons and have all those colors of emotions and, and the arc and everything that the uh, character has to go through working. It's, it's incredibly rewarding. It's too bad that it's such a small theater, you know, where we didn't get to translate it to film.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another
4: one I, I, w- I was really honored to be asked to play revive the role role in the Fisher King on stage. Okay. Which is both dramatic and comedic Mm. and it was you know all the colors and and it was very difficult not to let robin in yeah
2: yeah because he
4: owned that character so well uh so i purposely tried to be jeffrey in these Mm -hmm. situations more as much as possible but he owned it so so well and and nailed the script so beautifully that when i played it truthfully people said gosh it was just like robin i was like okay." He was doing it right, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was really lovely to uh, uh, pay homage to that great piece, to Robin's work, and then also raise money for the homeless and animals charities, various charities that Robin uh, championed.
2: Yeah, definitely. So do you have a, a preference of comedy, uh, you know, comedy over drama or or, or not really? <laughs> I,
4: I, I guess I do pr- prefer comedy in that i've been fortunate to play vaudevillians uh both on stage and in immersive theater and uh doing a lot of comedy and film uh and i love being say in the audience watching myself on film and watching the audience and hearing the audience react and laugh to my mm-hmm. work yeah. Uh, around me that's thrilling to be a part of it and to sort of be outside of myself watching myself you know it's yeah, yeah. Uh, dynamic and fun uh, I, but then uh, I love also moving an audience too if I see someone yeah. crying at what I've done on the screen uh, I love that I
3: wanted to see you grown up what do you want me
2: to say?
0: Nothing. Nothing. I. I know I wasn't
3: there for you growing up. But I, I don't deserve to see you. I'm sorry.
2: I caught your I think I forget the character's name now so Toby Belch in your um I guess it was a the show must go online series and and the, the 12th night it was great and yeah you starred in it alongside the talented Lewis Alcock so this was like August of the pandemic or August 2020 as I said earlier I'm an actor myself I did a, a couple of virtual performances one over Christmas in Christmas 2020 and then one um, in the summer, when things had sort of slightly opened up here, but they still weren't having sort of uh, visiting touring companies coming in. And uh, while I was grateful of the work, it was grateful that all of a sudden the world started embracing another way of enabling the arts to still flourish. I find it challenging. You've got that slight delay, particularly if your internet connection is not great. It's that reacting thing that you need, particularly, you know, if it's comedy um which didn't come across in the 12th night so that you had that down <laughs> but um yeah i guess i was wondering how much did the lockdown particularly early on affect you you know both well professionally i suppose mainly but personally as well because it can take a toll when you're self employed you know you that that is your bread and butter and and then they say yeah life theater this work is all stopping until goodness knows when it it's a lot to take on, as it was for everyone, but um hit the arts particularly hard. So I guess, what was that journey like for you?
4: It was profoundly upsetting and scary. Uh, I think between all the fan cons, movie roles, uh, live performances and, and uh, party entertainment, all these different things I had in the calendar, mm-hmm. uh, I probably lost about $85,000 worth of work. yeah. And uh, I was like, what am I going to do? My God. And, and there have been some help uh, with arts grants and government grants and such um, drops in the bucket really. Uh, and, but also on other levels, I love people. I'm a very social person. I just adore going to fan cons and meeting people. And I, I don't know if you know this, but a Facebook used to not have a limit on how many friends you had. Mm-hmm. So about eight, nine years ago, I reached, what, 6,500 friends and then woke up one morning because they decided 5,000 was your limit. I was like, my God, where are 1,500 my friends? You know? yeah. <laughs> and yeah. since then, I I go, and they don't make this easy at all, trying to find who is in deactivated their account so I can add the six, one of the 600 that are in line who have yeah. sent me yeah. a request. Anyway, I love people because I make these friends around the world when I uh, do projects or uh, fan cons, and then I uh, losing that touch with uh, teaching in person, losing the touch of acting uh, on sets and then acting on stage. It was it was uh, stultifying. I don't know, stifling. Mm. I just couldn't believe it, and I in fact. Got together with uh, some thespians, some actors I went to high school with, uh, Lee Ehrenberg, who was in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Most people know him from that, mm-hmm. but he's just a fantastic actor. Helped start the uh, acting with my friend Ron Rosen, uh, Ron Campbell and Tim Robbins uh, when they came out of UCLA. And, and another gentleman, uh, Matt Walker, wonderful uh, comedian and uh, actor from the same high school. And we were on a Zoom call saying, my God, what are we going to do? Yeah. How are we going to survive? How, what do we, and we decided we would do a pandemic version of Waiting for Godot, calling Zoom, calling it Zooming for Godot.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and Matt and, and Ron took the uh, go go leads, and I got lucky, and, and Lee was uh, a pose, potso, and we recorded it. Uh, and yet we've never released it. It came out groupingly funny, dramatic. Uh, moving it was it was really incredible uh but we didn't release it because we couldn't figure out how to get clearance from Beckett's estate Mm
1: -hmm. to
4: do it you know we didn't want money for ourselves we wanted to raise money for say the actors fund Mm
1: -hmm. for
4: the screen actors guild uh also technically technologically is that a word? <laughs> uh, my computer was a little behind the other guys. And so I wanted to redo my lucky speech. And then Matt got work for the Getty Center and he was our main tech guy. Anyway, they fell behind and uh, it never got completed. So I'm thinking of releasing my pandemic lucky speech because it's so potent. It's 10, mm-hmm. 15 minutes of me just ramb- ranting, thinking of mm-hmm. everything that was going on at the time in August of or April, April or August. I think we shot it. Anyway, during the early pandemic yeah. here in the U.S. Uh, but meanwhile, then I discovered the show must go online folk uh, who were casting Back to the Future as if Shakespeare had written it.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah.
4: And uh, they knew who I was. I, I, uh, the writer who was a friend on Facebook uh, had posted that they were casting his, his writing of it and I was like, are they still looking for people? And I said, mm-hmm. I don't know. And he hooked me up with them. And when they learned who I am, uh, they said, what role would you like to play? I said, how about doc Brown? Yeah. And so here in my living room, I did a, an abbreviated version of back to the future is doc Brown as if Shakespeare had written it,
1: mm-hmm. which
4: is online and available for free. If you look at up at, on YouTube, T S M G O the show must go online. Yeah. And, uh, and I did the you know, the slide from the clock tower here. My wife was my set decorating <laughs> costumer. I did my, my oh, Marty! Uh, and with my these and those, and, uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was big fun. And they loved it that they got someone from the Back to the Future series to be in their production.
3: Act three, scene two, just outside Hill Valley and at Doc Brown's house. Enter Marty and Doc. My God above! dost thou know what this means? It means this damn contraption doesn't work. Behold, my friend, the work of thirty years as I exhibit How a simple sketch hast by thy hand come reality. Oh. <laughs> it, it, it worketh! It, it, it worketh! Oh, mark the day! Finally, I invented something that uh, ought that worketh! <laughs> certainly it worketh. That I stand in 1955 is ample proof. Thou couldst bet bottom dollar it is so. Let us sneak this unto my laboratory. We shall return thee home. This do I vow! The night we sent me hither to this time, we made a record of the experiment. This video I shall connect unto thy television that thou mayst behold. Come now, and thou shalt see what we have done. <clears throat> oh, uh, tis I. Observe how old I, I've become. Your ears. My name you know, tis Dr. Emmett Brown. I stand upon the stony parking lot of the Twin Pines Mall Hill Valley California. Thank be to God I still have all my hair. Yet what are these strange garments I wear? A, a radar thou in radiation suit. A radiation suit? Of course, of course, from all the fallout from Atomic War. methought mm, thought it would be so. I see it is. For never was there peacetime made to last.
4: When I saw that they were doing Twelfth Night, I, I you know, asked to play Aguecheek. You know, I, I said, I'd like to put him to play Sir Andrews since I, mm-hmm. I understudied him once and never got to go on uh, mm-hmm. with Will Gears Theatricum many years back. And uh, they saw me more as Toby Belch. I was like, I love playing to- I'd love to play Toby Belch. Uh-huh. I actually played Falstaff in high school. I would uh-huh. <laughs> love to play Sir Toby. And and then uh, as you know, as you saw it, you probably recognize my drapes and yeah. my plant. Yeah.
3: <laughs> to Sir Toby Belch and Mariah. Oh, no. What a plague! It means my niece to take the death of her, her brother, thus. <laughs> I'm sure cares an enemy to life. I might troth, Sir Toby, you must come in early our nights. Your cousin, my lady, takes great exceptions to your ill hours. Why, let her accept before accepted. Aye, but you must confine yourself within the modest limits of order. Confine? I'll confine myself to these clothes. These clothes are as good enough to drink in, and so be these boots. will <laughs> so be these boots, too, and maybe not. Let them hang themselves in their own straps.
4: <laughs> so that was a blast to have sort of the creative muscle flexing a little bit uh, a yeah. few times and learning how to, say, make uh, through the camera or or pass a prop here, here's a glass of water for you. And, yeah. and then, and then you pick it up on the other side, you know, you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some of it, it's been improvised. And then uh, the uh, actors gang that I mentioned that Lee Ehrenberg and Tim Robbins and company had helped form uh, started doing a virtual salon called the show, uh, the cabinet of oddities and the cabinet of oddities would meet every couple of weeks with a different prompt for a theme. Mm -hmm. And sometimes as many as two dozen actors, musicians and poets would show up in that theme and they would make offerings of either a monologue or a poem or a song or an improvised thing for the first hour. And then the second hour we'd be spotlit and do improvise in different characters and stay in characters for two to three hours. And so that was incredibly rewarding because I was working with lots of heavy hitter talents uh, around the world. The Actors Gang has been extant since the mid-80s, I think, and uh, uh, really have churned out some very fine talents for for television and film. So I was finding ways to exercise the creative muscle, but not the financial. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to try to, developed the uh the Mark Twain project. I, and I have several ones. So one is a one-man show uh based on Mark Twain's shadow life. He had terrible tragedies befall him since he was a young baby. He he almost mm-hmm. came close to death as a child several times and then his father's death and then his uh terrible luck. He, he joined the Confederacy in the Civil War and went AWOL after a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh took it on the lamb out Out West, had terrible luck as a gold miner, then a silver miner, uh, almost lit Lake Tahoe on fire. Uh, There's a lot of stories that the public probably aren't aware of. And then the terrible tragedies he bankrupted himself two or three times, (laughs) making Mm -hmm. bad investments and then losing his favorite daughter and then his beloved wife. Um, Some some very heavy darkness in his life, which I think would make a very wonderful story on stage so i'm developing that simultaneously developing uh mark twain's american history as i mentioned Mm
0: -hmm. and i have
4: about 12 episodes that i'm fleshing out uh mostly fleshing out the pilot i shot the proof of concept where i play simon wheeler since i had a pandemic fur, a big old beard Mm -hmm. i play the uh the old miner that tells twain the jumping frog of calaveras county story and then I shaved the beard and kept the mustache and then shot as Twain bookending the story with commentary and narration. Uh, and it came out pretty good. It's my proof of concept. Um, and I've used that uh, to help get a, a few grants to develop it into a TV series. And I'm pitching it now. And I'm also, uh, I've been invited to be an artist in residence at the Mark Twain's center, uh, Mark Twain's, Center for Studies, the Center for Mark Twain Studies, there we are, mm-hmm. in Elmira, New York. Uh, I did a seminar recently for their uh, video series that you can find on the website. And then I'm applying again to to go there in person. The, the Delta variant this year mm-hmm. kept me from traveling uh, because it canceled two more fan cons that I was supposed to be in with Back okay. to the Future cast reunions. And uh, that money that I was going to earn there was going to pay for my trip back to new york yeah. so back to the square one kind of you know the delta variant has put a wrench into quite a few things
2: yeah i know i mean yes gosh it, it does feel like it this it's the the beast that keeps on giving doesn't it but uh
4: um, yeah, one of my fears is even though only vaccinated and even boosted is that uh I may have something that I don't know because it, you can be asymptomatic and carry it and spread yeah, it to yeah. someone who's Vulnerable not vaccinated. Yeah. And and I don't want to kill someone inadvertently.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah. It's very much the same here. Everything seems to be um, rising in the wrong direction again, you know, and leading up to Christmas in the winter, but you know, hopefully, Um, I don't know what the situation is in the States, but they're trying to put a vaccination program in for sort of school age, um, you know, like 12, 12 to 16. So it seems to be where it's spreading the most um, here in Wales definitely is amongst that kind of school age group.
4: Yeah, kids bringing it home to unvaccinated parents. But now we've uh, we've had a, a vaccination for five to 12 year olds approved. Yeah. So we're getting in at least this community, a thousand kids vaccinated a day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people are stepping up where I live is very uh, conscientious and compassionate. And I'd say 75 percent of the folk here are are vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, There are uh, anti-vaxxers and people who think that it's uh, just a a cold and and, Mm -hmm. uh, are not being so compassionate or, or smart. And it's unfortunate, and it's and it's holding, uh, it's holding us back in many different ways. Mm. And uh, what are you going to do?
2: Yeah, I know. I, I mean, yeah, as you say, you can only do and be conscientious yourself, and in your sort of in, your own community or your own family life, and do what you can do, um, which you know, hopefully, a lot of people are and have the sense to do that um but yeah you gotta
4: trust trust science and history Uh, yeah if you look back at the the spanish flu uh what was it i don't know 50 million people Mm -hmm. died worldwide i I, we've got now we're up to 5 million people Mm -hmm. worldwide back then they didn't have a vaccination we do Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's the matter people come on anyway it's uh it's very upsetting and and uh, unnerving and and hard on the career. Mm.
2: It is, it is particularly as you say, you know that you know it's not just you know fair enough with things like life theater maybe, but you know the other things you've had in the diary, the fan conventions, this sort of thing that that bumps up the wages when that other work is sort of dropped off a bit. It, you know to lose that can be. A, a big uh, stress on the finances.
4: I was a couple of weeks away from heading out to uh, shoot a movie, a very funny movie uh, where I was actually a comedic part who turns out to be the evildoer in it. Mm-hmm. The bad guy. <laughs> and two weeks before we were to shoot, there was a spike in the COVID uh, from anti-maskers or people who weren't pr- protecting mm-hmm. them coming into that community where we we're going to shoot, bringing it in. Yeah. And spiking right. and, and so they pulled the plug on the project. We're still waiting for that to get back on the rails. I had uh unfortunately uh three different back to the future cast reunions uh set and um because one of the cast members is 90 and another one teaches children or her charities are with children, uh they they backed out because there were mm-hmm. spikes just a yes. month before we were to go to these different places in Florida and Tennessee. And they, uh, they said, we can't do it. So they pulled the plug on all of us and we all, you know, lost out. Hopefully we'll get back on track, get it rescheduled. Um, and these events still went on. Oh, okay. just not with us.
2: Oh, That's such a shame. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a huge um, back to the future fan. Again, linked to that nostalgia. It was sort of uh, the Westerns watching those with my great grandparents and then sort of watching the, the trilogy, the back to the future trilogy with, you know, my, my parents and my brother, um, you know, it was on all the time growing up. Um, I guess that talking about Back to the Future then. So, I mean, one of the roles you are best known for is your portrayal of George McFly um, in Back to the Future 2 and 3. And take, taking over from Crispin Glover amidst some controversy.
0: Initially, the reason I had the lawsuit was just – it's expensive to get publicists. I just wanted people to know that that was not me in the film. Even to this day, people still think I'm in that movie. Mm -hmm. It still really is – it's endlessly aggravating. Even with the the lawsuit, there's no – what that illegal action that they did was – I, there's no one I can commiserate with that has had that exact same thing happen. Yeah. It's really bad, I promise you. What they did was really bad. Yeah. Is and the so,
1: aggravating part the fact that they did something illegal, the fact that you don't like the performance and people think it's you? Everything.
0: Think about it. If you're a young person and the, and there's a major movie out that people think you are that person acting in it, and that person—I I have no— uh, 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 feeling of, of, regre- of regret or apology, saying this, I do not like the performance that that person did.
2: Has the sort of, or did the the drama surrounding the way you took over, and uh, you know, and there was a, even a court case, wasn't there, between Crispin um, and the and the filmmakers? Um, did that kind of sour what would have otherwise been. A really sweet, you know, a really sweet gig for you. A really, a really great opportunity. Did that kind of not ruin it, but did, did it sort of sour things a little bit from your end of things?
4: Yes, it, the the whole situation was. Uh, I can see now, you know, with all the years of perspective, uh, very difficult for almost all parties in, involved. Uh, first of all, I came into it being told that I was being considered for uh, uh, a stand-in photo double.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, It was never to play the role. Uh, And I think at that point, what had gone on was that the producer's director uh, had made an offer to Crispin for the sequel that he was not accepting or happy with. And over the years I've heard so many different stories, but it seems the one that keeps repeating that's probably the truth is that they made him an offer. He came back with a counteroffer that they wouldn't honor. Then he, uh, uh, kind of led them on saying, Oh, let me think about it, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Finally came, came back to them and said, uh, you know, I want script approval. Uh, I want as much as say Leah and Tom, uh, and they came back and even made him an even lesser offer if he was mm-hmm. going to be difficult.
1: Yeah. Uh,
4: so he just, I think, walked away in my mind. You know, I, I was thinking they were going to need uh, George in multiple places at the same time mm-hmm. because it, uh, uh, you know, you, you need Michael Marty in several places at the same time.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, I figured that was the case. And uh, they screen-tested me in the uh, young George makeup,
1: mm-hmm.
4: age 17, Enchantment Under the Sea, Biff Fight makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a hint of what was going on when uh, Bob Zemeckis asked Dean Cundy, uh, what do you think? And mm-hmm. uh, Dean said, well, I think we got uh, George Crispin without the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh. and And in my mind when, when my makeup artist actually, Ken Chase told me, you know, Crispin's out, you're going to be George. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, how are they going to do that? And mm-hmm. why? And I figured Crispin had, cause Crispin's star was rising yeah. uh, with the doors movie and uh dead man and, you know, river's edge. He was, he was really an excellent talent. And I had worked with him at a, uh, AFI the American Film Institute on a film in 83 before he got the first film so I was a big fan when I saw him on the big screen in the first Back to the Future I was like I know that guy he's he's doing mm. he's knocking it out of the park even called him to con- congratulate him and uh, what I figured why he wasn't coming back to do the sequels was that he had another project that he just could not get out of and they needed to
1: mm. get
4: Back to the Future Part 2 II and 3 and in, into production right away and couldn't wait for him. So I was like actually horribly disappointed and yet really happy at the same time. I needed mm. the money and, and my insurance, my ex-wife was having our second child. know, I needed the medical. So I did all those scenes where the first things we shot were recreating the fight with Biff in the parking lot and getting mm-hmm. Lorraine out of the car and going into the enchantment under the sea dance and the kiss. Mm-hmm. And often you know, people looked at me in that makeup and said, "What the hell's going on?" And and uh, Crispin ain't going to like this. I remember Mike Fox saying, and and mm. uh, uh, often Zemeckis and others would refer to me as Crispin. I was like, "This is creepy. Mm. <laughs> this is yes. very." Weird. So what yeah. I saw was that I was being a pawn in a tug of war of power, mm. and it was very unfortunate that they couldn't work it out because Crispin did a knockout job with creating that character or, you know, developing it with uh, the first film. And, and that they were also, everyone was very upset. I know Leah was very fond of Crispin and, and uh, that uh, participating in it were very uncomfortable having a replacement. I put my trust that Spielberg and Zemeckis and Gale and Canton, all the parties, had cleared the licensing for the makeups i wore with crispin Uh, and it was after part three had come out that crispin called me and said you know what they did to me was not fair and i was like talk to me what what happened he said well they're mixing close-ups of me with your work from the first film paying me scale very little money thinking that I, that's acceptable. And then they used my likeness on you and your makeup. And I said, mm. oh, you're right. You got screwed. <laughs> mm. and, uh, and because of my conversations and sharing photos that I had uh, with him uh, helped him win his settlement out of court. I think before it even went to court yeah. uh, of three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, when that came out, uh, I ended up getting backlessly. So that happening to an actor uh, who's trying to raise children is it was uh, devastating for me and it fell apart. I have a little nervous breakdown and uh, also it led to the disillusionment of my first uh, marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was uh, really hard for me because I had mysteriously promotional tours for Universal that I was working for as comedic characters. With the opening, simultaneously with the opening of the movie, the promotional tours plug was pulled. I couldn't get photos or my footage. Mysteriously, I was being blocked and it made me very upset. So I had no problem trying to help Crispin get, uh, you know, what I thought he deserved, some some, uh, recompense for kind of being screwed over. On the producer's side, and I can understand this, they saw Crispin as a pain in the ass. Yeah. because on the first film he made demands mm-hmm. constantly was difficult on set he, he would come in with example a painting that he and leah had painted together in character and insisted to zemeckis that they that this should be part of the mcfly home and zemeckis was like no no i've got an art director that I pay tons of money to do it. no that ain't gonna work and crispin would throw a fit yeah. when Ken uh, chase trimmed crispin's hair when he fell asleep in his chair crispin threw a fit uh he would disappear during the shooting what else was i uh told uh, uh he would not always hit his marks mm. so for for camera for focus yeah. you have an x on the floor that you hit uh, with your perver- peripheral vision or practice you hit those marks so you can be in focus and he would overshoot or undershoot them constantly so that's where the ortholev hanging up george upside down in the future in 2015 came out of because they said if we can control crispin we can have him on his marks all the time and yeah. so that's where that came from there's a urban legend out there that they hung George upside down so he wouldn't be recognized because it wasn't Crispin Glover. Well, that's bullshit.
1: <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, anyway, there is, there's a lot of unfortunate anger and animosity that's lasted 30 plus years. And I keep saying, you know, come on, Bob Gale, come on, Crispin Glover, shake hands, get over your, your yeah. egos and your admit to each other. You both made mistakes and come together for the fans or Michael's charity. You know the fans would flip out yes. to see everyone apologize and come to the table and do something for a charity.
1: Yeah, and definitely.
4: and I would like an apology in there too. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I I was I was horribly mistreated, and um, as I mentioned, uh, the uh, the fallout for me uh, was terrible for my career. I I stopped working in Hollywood uh, for many years. I've I've gone back a few times for a couple of projects, but. It is not where my career was taking me. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, this is you know one one of the most successful film trilogies of all time, and it should have made your career, or at least that like helped you get where you were already going. You were already kind of set that way, and yeah, the fact that your involvement had to almost be kept hush hush. You know, you you should have been in the limelight with everybody else. And yeah, the
4: example, the uh, the premiere of part three. Uh my invitation didn't materialize. Uh when I called to say, Hey, I didn't get an invite, they said, Oh, well, it's a charity. If you want to give us $350, I was like, What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so uh yeah, there was they were purpose purposefully making it difficult. And it was obvious the writing on the wall that they were the pulling the Hollywood power plays and trying to keep me secret to get away with something,
1: mm-hmm. which
4: you know Crispin wasn't gonna let, let them do that and and I'm glad that the fans were gonna let him do it. It's unfortunate that a lot of Crispin's uh very hard line hard line uh fans, you know, uh see me as as the creep that took the role from him. And I'm like, yeah. you guys, you know, I I think I was kind of the glue that helped keep some parts of the trilogy together because a lot of fans didn't know there was, you know, something going on there. And it, it was all about the story, you know, and, uh, so there's, you know, there's so much like I said, there's so many elements on, on this story and it's so, uh, involved, um, the rewards for me is being a part of such a great trilogy, Mm -hmm. uh, of being able to pay for my second, uh, son's birth (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
4: of becoming friends with cast you know, I got to be pretty close very quickly with many of the cast members and we've through the years, uh, it's like family reunions whenever we get yeah. together. Uh, I have had uh, amazing experiences around the world now with fans uh, of the trilogy uh, and and my uh, and the respect that I've gotten has really, you know, luckily gone up instead of stayed in the shadows
0: how many times have we heard it george mom i can't let him think 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 i'm chicken chicken. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: you're right well you're right
0: about 30 years ago your father tried to prove he wasn't chicken and he ended up in an automobile accident oh you mean with the Rolls Royce? automobile
1: accident is that my mom is that my mom marty hey princess hi son yeah what the hell happened you throw you back out again Oh, I was out on the golf
3: course. And... No, Dad,
1: I told you to watch that
3: backswing.
0: No, he was hit by a car. It it just fell out of the sky. He could have been killed.
3: And I was too under par.
0: I don't know what this world is coming to. Marty, how was work?
1: Oh, Mom, I'm telling you, that big promotion is just around the corner. Anyway, I'm starving. Let's eat. Come on, son, let's go. It's dinner time. Oh, no,
2: that's great. And I think, yeah, I mean, like you say, you had, you had you had a lot of the backlash because of some of the underhanded things that, that went on to sort of almost keep it a secret that that you were,
4: would... yeah hanging upside down <laughs> oh, of
2: course
4: <laughs> it took a couple of weeks to get all that uh interior 2015 stuff and I was there almost every day for the living room dining room and, and kitchen and or tv room and uh, and hanging upside down for one week my time card read 19 hours 21 hours and 26 hour long days wow. uh, and you know four hours just to get into makeup hang upside down and then another hour to get out of makeup and then maybe sometimes less than eight hours before you'd have to be back in the makeup chair yeah so those were those were some hard hard weeks
2: um yeah and, and you like you said it, you know it took it took its toll in the aftermath on your on your mental health you know being essentially blacklisted uh, are there any regrets you know, regarding any of it for for yourself, if you could go back to speak back in time to uh, speak to your younger self, taking on that role, would you? I, give that I regret
4: I regret that I didn't hold out for um, that I, I didn't hold out for better money and control, and kind of got to the bottom of them having the rights. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
4: yeah. I, I I think that would have been uh, the thing to do is to uh, you know my agents. I don't want to say they were ineffectual. They, they negotiated somewhat for me, but I had to negotiate my own billing. I went to the director and I said, look, Bob, my last movie I did with Clint Eastwood, I had a title card, shared mm-hmm. title card, you know, anything less would be a step back for me. So he agreed to give that to me. The producers were not going to give that to me. They wanted to keep me a secret or mm-hmm. in the background and, uh, and Bob Gale's colors, really have, have come through with gaslighting and, and blacklisting. And it really is upsetting. Um, and I'm hoping he gets over it and is a man mm-hmm. and takes his, his foibles. So if you'd like, I've got some footage from the cut uh, making of Back to the Future 2 that I can share yeah. with you if you'd like to see. Yeah, it's a couple yeah. minutes of, of fun stuff. So here in the makeup chair with Nancy Basta working on me behind is Mike Mills and Ken, Kenny Myers working on Leah. This is also Sonny Berman gluing me in, Nancy. So it, uh, Sonny Berman of the Berman brothers who produced all the Star Trek later series and uh, really all these legends in makeup. Mike, Mike Mills at, uh, working on Leo over there was the foreman on Beetlejuice. Kenny Myers works a lot. Uh, with Marvin Westmore from the famous Westmore family. We had mm-hmm. the top makeup artists in Hollywood working on us. And like I I mentioned, the design by Kenny Meyer, uh, Ken Chase, who did many fantastic makeups in the 60s and 70s. We'd work for a couple hours and then I'd get to stretch for a few minutes, maybe go have breakfast and then come back and do another couple hours uh, of being painted and getting a wig put on and such.
2: Would you sort of be limited to like what you ate or drank or you know you need to drink with a straw and that kind of thing or was it quite robust makeup
4: (laughs) I it was it was pretty strong latex but yeah they didn't like me eating (laughs) we can don't chew (laughs) and often after after a meal they'd have to putty in the sides of the mouth
2: wow yeah i mean gosh so you as you said like four hours maybe longer in in makeup getting all that on for for the younger makeup what about the old the old man makeup was that was that longer
4: sometimes we get it down to three and a half hours
1: yeah
4: (laughs) especially if everyone was you know on their game Uh uh-huh uh and then like i said uh being hung upside down luckily uh a day or two into being hung upside down, Zemeckis had told the guys at ILM, um, getting him down in between takes is taking too much time. What can we do? So they built a ladder uh, with a board on it and it would say, do a, a sit up. And I would do a sit up and they'd slide it under me and I would sit back and everyone would go for coffee and I'd be on set twiddling my thumbs, hanging there, <laughs> meditating. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I was able to come up, because I, I was kind of thrown in, in the 11th hour, mm-hmm. uh, I, I uh, wasn't given a lot of time to rehearse. You know, on the first film, Crispin, of course, had uh, several months before they went into production to do all the, the tests
1: yes. with, um,
4: you know, getting... Uh, makeup tests and lighting tests and costume tests and improv improvising. There's that ladder. <laughs> uh and then they shot for what was it, eight weeks or so with uh Eric Stoltz. Um so by the time they got Mike Fox on set, everyone really had their character down strong and mm. solid. And I and I did have the luxury of Crispin's performance yeah. to study before I came on on set. Um, but in the new stuff you know i i was looking at my script paradox both 1 and 2 were in the same script called paradox and i was looking at my script a couple of weeks ago and those scenes in 2015 uh mine in particular there were like eight rewrites mm-hmm. i think one of them even had marty in the ortholev hanging upside down right. it was they didn't, they didn't know what they were going to do because of the negotiation problems with crispin so they were rewriting constantly yeah. and we were rewriting on the set and often I was fighting to get lines back. There's like Zemeckis was like, "All right, Mike, you take this line. Lorraine, uh, Leah, you take this line." I was like, "Hello, I could, I could do those lines. They're meant for George." Mm-hmm. So they gave me some of the lines back, and I improvised a few, like, "How's Granddad little? How's Granddad's little pumpkin?" Uh, I improvised because my head was butt level with Marlene's butt, and they gave um, Mike these, Marlene these, hot pants that looked like a pumpkin uh and also the eating of the banana upside down which was cut uh uh fruit please and then the uh uh rotating my axis for dinner that was all cut for pizza yeah. uh, i did a golf swing and did my crispin lap like uh, 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 four oh <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that's cut you can find it though in the deleted bonus material yeah
2: of- yeah i've seen it yeah yeah one of the special features yeah I mean, you, you, you said there about not really having the, the, the sort of rehearsal time, but I guess having Crispin's, um, uh, performance in the first movie to, to study almost. I mean, being an actor and being an imitator, you know, it goes hand in hand. I've always been a big fan of, say, actors like, um, I don't know, Johnny Depp, you know, controversy at the minute <laughs> aside, I've always thought he's a, he's a very good, Imitator. I've liked the sort of um, real life accounts he's done of of people like um, uh, Hunter Thompson, um, uh, James Matthew Barry, who wrote uh, *Peter Pan*. You know that performance. Um, Donnie Brasco. I-, I like that kind of thing, and and just getting into you know the the characteristics of a, a real person that people can you know they they already have an idea of what that that person is like, speaks like, moves like, you know. Reacts with other characters like, and I guess, you know, you're, you're a, a good imitator yourself. You've done roles like Laurel and Hardy, Groucho Marx, as we've mentioned earlier, you know, but with Back to the Future, uh, two and three, you are, you know, imitating another actor's portrayal of a character that may feel as real to some fans as, as if it was a historic, you know, figure. Um, for the,
4: for the, but the... 1955 stuff it was out and out imitation you they needed precise imitation to keep it seamless for the fans otherwise you'd be taken out of the story well that wasn't what I remembered from the first film so we were constantly going back to the monitor to Uh see if our movements were matching what was done in fact someone of a fan for wow 30 years who found me when he was like 16 he told me the other day oh I caught that by the way when you do the thumbs up to Marty and the enchantment under the sea dance after the kiss and the rain, well, you did it. Um, you did it after the kiss. Whereas in the first film, it was done before the kiss. I was like, Oh my God, people got too much time on their hands, but <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but he caught it. Whereas yeah. the professionals and continuity script supervisor, they're on the set. They didn't catch that or the editor, whatever. Anyway, it's, it's minute, but it's fun because it's so obsessive people obsess and cosplay and it's so thrilling the fans are just gorgeous to me luckily um and then with the future stuff though as an actor who loves developing characters and has the confidence to do things it was unfortunate that I wasn't included in rehearsals or you know I was thrown in kind of in the deep end and for the anniversary in 2015 I loved uh getting a message from Tom Wilson who played Biff uh i was like jeffrey i had to take that message down i was like what are you talking about and he had uh put up a message on the anniversary about how he and crispin were on top of the world here two relatively unknowns were on had the shoulders on their shoulders with this, this major motion picture um and here was the anniversary of it and he was rec- remembering and then he continued and then he mentioned how on part two and three that uh he couldn't Fathom what I was going through, because I had an impossible task to to do to recreate first those scenes and then break new ground uh, with George in the future. And yet he said, "But I stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the park," mm-hmm. which was incredibly heartwarming for me. Uh, I didn't see the original post, but when he shared it with me, uh, it made me feel great. That luckily, Tom, you know, my peer and co-worker mm-hmm. in the projects um, had said that. He told me, though, he went further to say he had to take it down because of all the vitriol, all mm-hmm. the uh, crisp and diehard fans who were like, nah, the guy's a scab, or fuck mm-hmm. that guy, so on and so forth. Anyway, but um, it is unfortunately what it is. Yeah. Uh, and I try to, you know, make the most of it. I've done, uh, as you said, lots of podcasts for people like Brad Evans and uh, lots of interviews with uh, Back to the Future theme podcasts Uh, I try to stay uh, loyal to the fans if something uh, goes south like the We're Going Back uh, Mm. fan uh, charity for Mike's uh, Team Fox got the plug pulled at the last minute and uh, 30 plus fans came from around the world who couldn't cancel their flights and hotels Uh, I, I stepped up and helped uh, put together last minute events at Universal and uh, the locations, uh, and the fans still got at least a big chunk of what they were coming and expecting to get. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, it is for the fans and it's also for Mike's charity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For that big anniversary year, I put together a cruise, the Back to the Future cruise to end Parkinson's, uh, where I got seven of the cast and crew together, and we went on a, a, a eight-day cruise and put together uh, a band, Mr. Fusion, with Harry Waters Jr. singing lead. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark McClure on drums, who played Dave McFly, and Don who played Mary Goldie Wilson on bass and me on guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, the late, great uh, Dave Lewis from Ambrosia and Shadowfax on keyboards, our musical director. And we did our own Enchantment Under the Sea dance for that 50-plus fans that came on that cruise and raised, you know, about 10 grand for Michael's charity. Because Mm -hmm. it, after all, is about... Everyone really loves Michael. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
2: So I guess uh, j- just to wrap things up then I mean don't get me wrong I I love um Crispin Glover's performance of of George McFly his portrayal of George McFly in the first film but um had you landed that role back when the the original came out would you have or how would you have interpreted that part? Um, do you think it would have been very different from the George that we saw? Oh,
4: yeah. I, I uh, Well, you know, uh, Johnny Depp auditioned for George McFly. Yeah,
2: yeah, I'd heard that, yeah.
4: I <laughs> wonder what he would have done. No, I uh, I kind of kicked myself because my agent didn't, I don't know if she submitted me on those or not, and I, I didn't get an audition. Uh, and how would I have done George? I, I don't know i don't know i love what crispin did and and finding like in Commedia characters you know uh, Arlecchino has the animal of a uh he he sly and walks like a fox he eats like a, a ravenous dog and he moves like a monkey anyway uh you know the Commedia characters all have animals to help them develop their physicalizations uh in studying what crispin did with george he had a real physicalized approach. Mm. Uh, he he had this hand thing going. His his uh, forehead. He kind of led with his forehead, mm. and he had the center of gravity that was kind of from the chest. You know, it, it was a real uh, interesting, fun thing that he developed, and I, I got to study a lot of it in in the screen test that I was given.
1: Yeah,
4: and I don't know that I would have done that, especially. Uh, Gosh, in eighty-five, well, in eighty-four, I was doing Pale Rider with Glenn Eastwood, and I was working on my physicalization for that. I I made Teddy uh, sort of a Teddy in the script, kind of a halfwit, and I uh, gave him lots of country things I knew to chew on, piece of grass, and it was fishing in shallow water with the hook and no bait. You know, he was a, he was kind of dumb. And I made it so like when things got very exciting for him, his feet would go out from under him and I'd land right on my butt. Yeah. And we did a few takes of that stuff. Uh, Clint liked it. Clint even said that looked funny. That was good. Keep doing that stuff. And uh, none of it stayed in the final cut, unfortunately. Um but nonetheless, I you know, it's hard for me to say what I would have come up with they had literally weeks and weeks before working with Eric Stoltz of rehearsal and development.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And then another eight weeks with Eric. Uh, so I imagined that things would have discovered uh, things on set like, like Crispin did. Yeah. And, and he was hands down. So right for the part. He was so remarkable in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Lou, give me a milk, chocolate,
0: density has brought me to you. What? Oh, what I meant to say was... Wait a
1: minute. Don't I know you from somewhere?
0: Yes. Yes. I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean...
2: Well, thank you so much for your time this evening or this morning. For you, um, I guess just to to finish off, is is there anything coming up? Anything you'd like to plug? Anything new? And and
4: uh, you know, another time if you want to call or just hang out, and I'll show you, I'll tell you all the secrets of Pale Rider because yes. there's a lot of a lot of mischief that took place on that shoot, and a lot of things to look for uh, uh-huh. in the editing. If you look real close, things they got away with a lot of stuff that. Uh,
1: right Just do a <laughs> I think, sequel,
4: yeah. sequel here uh, i am uh this coming next weekend we'll be in new jersey i'm not sure when you're going to broadcast this
2: yeah like i imagine just around christmas sort of oh, okay so the yes. the
4: my new jersey horror con will be over and done with by then uh for the holidays i'll be uh, doing what is known as drive through dickens okay uh, I, i've been for off and on for the years, uh, participating in the Charles Dickens Christmas Fair. And uh, in recent years, have been playing Alfred Jingle Esquire from Pickwick Papers, the sort of double-talking con artist, Bounder. And this year in Drive Through Dickens, I'll actually be hosting a stage uh, with the musical acts on it and interviewing Charles Dickens and uh, doing a little singing and dancing and comedy. And then uh, I have a couple film projects that hoping to get on track back on track. And uh, one is uh, called uh, beavers from outer space. Uh, Another one uh, called uh, treasure tales uh, in which uh, a school teacher sends his uh, young students on a treasure hunt that uh, ends up where they end up finding stumbling into finding a big uh, treasure from a bank robbery uh some really fun scripts and uh I have of course the the Twain projects that I'm hoping to get developed and underway so wish me luck yes. also I'm, I'm in, in talks right now for a stage show that a uh, really great script as oh, well
2: fantastic and where can people find you sort of on the socials and website and
4: <laughs> oh uh I have uh uh on the homepage is an email button if you want to get a hold of me I have photos from scarecrow and mrs king and uh the bell rider and twilight zone movie and uh of course back to the future movies uh that i can autograph for you or someone in your life who is a big fan at a reasonable price at fair market value Mm -hmm. uh and as well as action figures and pizza foils um and uh, then i'm on twitter at jef1f Weissman W E I S S M A N on Instagram at Jeffrey J Weissman and on Facebook my fan page is at Jeffrey Weissman actor. Once again, the personal page is full and impossible <laughs> making they make it impossible to add and subtract. Um, but you, I think it, you could probably follow me on that page anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, so there you are. I, I uh, though because of the Facebook political and control things going on and maybe ending all the Facebook and Instagram stuff. Okay. I I haven't yet pulled the plug, but I'm seeing a lot of people doing it because it's just more morally, uh, uh, really embarrassing to be there. Mm. Though I have a lot of entertaining things on my page. I (laughs) try to keep everyone entertained with, uh, not just cute animal videos, but, uh, (laughs) wonderful music. I'm a DJ. I'm I, a musicologist. Uh, behind these curtains are my CD collection and out there is my record collection and my cylinder record collection. And I, I'm an wow. archivist. Anyway.
2: Fantastic. Well, best of luck with, with all your upcoming projects. And again, thank you for your time today.
4: Okay. Well, it's been a, a, a treat for me. Nice to meet you and hopefully I'll see you in the future.
2: Join us next time when I interview singer songwriter, Jessica Wilde.
3: To LA. Then winter
2: nights at Café Cairo, inspired words to stream through my biro. You walked into my gig with a smile I couldn't miss. We locked eyes and that was it. Told me you were from L.A., only here for a two-week stay. We met up the next day, dub gigs and parties, two in the moment that we hardly noticed the days go by. Soon you board your plane and fly. Back to L.A.
1: Wonder if we ever. Background breaks away Look me up before you catch your eye
2: back to LA So how's it been being back in the States? I wanted to tell you I've been going to AA